During an interview with a newspaper in 2008, then President of the United States, George Bush said, I'll be long gone before some smart person ever figures out what happened inside this Oval Office. Uh, Critics of the President might say he said more than he meant and inadvertently spoke truth in that interview. Uh, Some people say more than they realise. They don't realise the truth of what they say. Today we're returning to Mark's biography of Jesus. Uh, Last year we spent about half the year in Mark's Gospel. In the first part of the year, uh, we asked the question, who do you say he is? Who is Jesus? And we finished that series with the key moment as the Apostle Peter finally says the truth, you are the Messiah. Uh, In the second half of the year, we heard more about who Jesus is and saw what it means for him to be the servant king. Uh, The key verse for that series, and it's important for us to understand what's going on in today's passage, uh, the key verse is Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Before Christmas, we finish things in chapter 14, where Jesus is betrayed by one of his own. Uh, We saw Jesus arrested by the Jewish leaders and questioned by the Sanhedrin, uh, that same group who continually arrest followers of Jesus in the book of Acts. And as Jesus was questioned, we saw all of his followers abandoned him. Chapter 15 picks up the events the morning after his betrayal, when all alone he's handed over to the Roman government in the person of Pilate, the governor. So read with me from verse 1, Mark chapter 15 and verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. Uh, The Jewish leaders hand Jesus over for practical reasons. They don't have the authority to execute a prisoner, only the Romans do. Uh, You might wonder how that fits with Stephen in Acts chapter 7 that we heard about last week. Well, that's not an authorised execution. Stephen was lynched by a murderous mob. Uh, Jesus is handed over because they want this done properly. Though it's also what Jesus said would happen. In chapter 10 he said, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. It's all happening as Jesus said. Uh, Being handed over to Pilate, to the Gentiles, it's not just practical. It shows Jesus is utterly rejected. Utterly rejected by the leaders of God's people, Israel. He's beyond the pale. He's thrown outside the camp to see what the wolves of the world will do to him. Jesus has been up all night. He's been betrayed 
and abandoned by those closest to him. He's had lies told about him before the Sanhedrin. And now he's in front of the representative of the most powerful human alive. Yet Jesus remains calm and in control. And is often the case, this riles the weak men in leadership. Verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Jesus doesn't answer Pilate's question, neither confirms nor denies the charge. The charge is serious. It's treason. Pilate knows there's already a king of the Jews and it's not the man in chains. Though Pilate reckons Jesus offers no threat to Roman rule, he seems to me like a relatively smart politician. He doesn't want to make a fuss and get the Jewish leaders offside, so he has a plan. Maybe he can get the crowd, who he thinks will be supportive of Jesus, maybe he can get the crowd to fix the problem. Verse 6. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. This is the second time Pilate has had the words on his lips, King of the Jews. Twice he's spoken more truth than he knows. From the start of his ministry, Jesus proclaimed, the kingdom of God is near. If the kingdom of God has come near, where is the king? Peter identified Jesus to be the king. That's what Messiah or Christ means. And here, Pilate says the same. But who will the crowd have released? Who will they accept? Will they want Jesus, a king who came to serve, a king who's willing to take up a cross, willing to die for his people, a king who brings spiritual freedom? Or will they ask for Barabbas? Barabbas is an insurrectionist. From the perspective of Rome, a terrorist. Uh, From the perspective of at least some Jews, a freedom fighter. From either side, a man willing to murder to achieve his political goal. At Passover, Pilate has a tradition. He's going to let one go free. Uh, Who will the crowd choose? Political freedom or spiritual freedom? Verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. It might be worth asking, 
how much of this impulse, how much do people who call themselves Christian today, how much more do we desire political freedom rather than spiritual? What or who are we willing to sacrifice in order to achieve political goals? The crowd and the leaders choose Barabbas instead of their true king. They, they choose the kingdom of this world over the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is handed over to be tortured. Most likely the trial was held in public in the square outside the governor's home. Now Jesus is taken into a, a more private space, into the palace yard, which was also the military barracks, uh, where he is tortured and mocked. Verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. Uh, This year is Queen Elizabeth's Platinum platinum Jubilee. Uh, Her coronation occurred at Westminster Abbey, surrounded by lords, ladies, knights, uh, the archbishop, She came to the abbey in a golden carriage, was given a bejeweled sword, a royal robe and stole, was crowned with gold and jewels to the shouts of, God save the Queen. In many ways, the praetorium is Jesus' coronation, at least his earthly one. And it could be no more different than that of Her Majesty. Although it's meant to be ironic and mockery, the soldiers are coronating Jesus. They deck him with royal robes and a highly appropriate crown made of thorns. And they mock him as King of the Jews. As offensive as it is, it's the appropriate coronation for a king who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Of course it's offensive, but at the same time, Jesus came to serve and give his life as a ransom. A ransom is what you pay to free someone from captivity. In our minds, you might think of freeing someone who's been kidnapped. In the ancient world, it's freeing someone who's enslaved. When Jesus says he came to give his life as a ransom, he's saying his death is the price required to free his people from slavery, from being enslaved to sin, enslaved to our own sinful hearts. When we put our needs before anyone else, when we do things, not worrying about how it'll impact others, and most of all, not thinking about whether it honours God, that's being enslaved to sin. 
Jesus came to give his life as a ransom, to set us free. Jesus didn't come to be served, to be surrounded by splendor and luxury. Jesus came to give his life. This coronation suits the king who humbled himself to death on a cross. Jesus said following him means to take up a cross. That losing everything in this life means saving it in the next. And Jesus is no hypocrite. Jesus didn't just tell his followers to do this, but wouldn't do it himself. The path of discipleship is to walk as Jesus did. Jesus came to take up his cross. Verse 20. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. And as Jesus is led out of the city, outside the place God had chosen for his temple and king, we meet a bloke who is a model disciple. Verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. I assume Simon, Alexander and Rufus were well known by early Christians. That's why they're mentioned by name. Because Simon continued to take up his cross and follow Jesus. Jesus is painfully, shamefully crucified. But just as during his trial, he remains in control even refusing the wine offered to dull his pain. And as he hangs there on the cross, once again, the truth is announced for all to see. Verse 22. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Uh, The words on the cross are the charge against Jesus, announcing the crime he's committed. It's meant to make a mockery of Jesus. Uh, You couldn't crucify a Roman citizen, let alone a king. Kings weren't crucified, they did the crucifying. At the same time, the sign makes a mockery of the Jewish people and their hopes. They were looking forward to the day God would keep his promise to David, uh, the promise of a forever king. But this sign announces unequivocally what Rome will do to any king of the Jews. But it seems the point was lost. Instead of mourning the death of their greatest hope, the people, the leaders, even others being crucified that day joined in mocking Jesus. Verse 27. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. 
In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Once again, even in their mocking, they speak more truth than they realise. The temple is being destroyed. What's the temple? The temple is the place heaven and earth meet. Uh, The Holy of Holies is the place where on the Day of Atonement, the high priest could go into the presence of God. Jesus is the temple. He is the presence of God. Heaven and earth meet in him. The temple is being destroyed by those who crucify Jesus. And they don't know it yet. But on the third day, this temple will rise. Uh, The temple is also being destroyed because in his death, Jesus is casting judgment on the temple. Uh, We see this in the final week of Jesus in Jerusalem. Uh, That's what we read in Mark 11 to 13. As Jesus enters the temple and casts out the traitors, as Jesus debates with the religious leaders, calling out their hypocrisy and hatred of God. On the cross, as the religious leaders crucify God's king, they bring judgment on the temple, which is made clear when, in a few hours, um, the, the curtain is going to be torn in two, desecrating the temple. Yes, the temple is being destroyed. Now, Peter Bolt puts it beautifully. Jesus' death spells the end of religion the end of the temple and all the ways it has been corrupted. The temple is also the place where sacrifices are offered, the place where the price for sin is paid. Jesus' death on the cross is the great, final, once-for-all sacrifice for sin. As he dies, he gives his life as a ransom for many. The temple is being destroyed This is the end of religion because it is the end of sacrifice. The passers-by mock Jesus for his claim to destroy and rebuild the temple, yet it's happening in front of their eyes. Uh, The Jewish leaders mock Jesus. What kind of saviour ends up on a cross. Throughout Mark's biography of Jesus, we read Jesus healing people. We read about that. We see it happening. Literally, healing means saving. He saved blind Bartimaeus and he could see. He saved the woman with the chronic flow of blood and she was clean. He saved Jairus' daughter and she stood up from her deathbed. Jesus has saved and saved and saved and so they mock. He can't save himself. The passers-by, the religious leaders, 
They sound like the mockers of Psalm 22. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they said. Let the Lord rescue him. Let he deliver him. This psalm is about to become very important in understanding the cross. Psalm 22 it was written by King David. It's a cry to God for rescue from his enemies. As the leaders mock Jesus in the words of Psalm 22, they show themselves as the enemies of God and his king. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And as Jesus is mocked on the cross, it also sounds like Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is all about God's promises to his Messiah, his promise to David that his his kingly line would last forever. And then though, it has this verse which reads, but you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. Uh, Anointed one means Messiah or Christ. As Jesus is rejected, as he's tortured by the soldiers, mocked by the passers-by, the religious leaders, as he's hung on that cross to die, how does Psalm 89 tell us to understand what's going on? You have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. Who is the you in this psalm? It's Yahweh, the God of Israel, rejecting, spurning his Messiah. But Jesus doesn't deserve this. He is innocent. He is the king of the Jews. He doesn't deserve the mocking of his people or the soldiers. He definitely doesn't deserve to be rejected and spurned by God. What's going on? Mark 10.45 For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The astounding truth is, on the cross, as Jesus bears not only the mocking of his creatures, but God's anger at sin, their mocking points to what God is doing on the cross. Jesus is serving his people. He's giving his life as a ransom for many, paying the price required to win us freedom and life. The crowd call out, give us Barabbas. Free the man who will fail to win us political freedom. And they hand over Jesus and are known to them through the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus pays the price for spiritual freedom. Who do you say Jesus is? On that horrible and holy morning, many people answered. They spoke the truth they didn't know. 
Jesus is the king. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the saviour. Do you know the truth? Will you come to Jesus and be free? Let's pray. Father God, please open our eyes to the truth. May we see that on the cross, Jesus is your king who didn't come to be served, but to serve by giving his life for us. Help us see the true temple, the true sacrifice that enables us to always be in your presence. May we see the Saviour and entrust ourselves to him. Amen.